Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm pleased to welcome the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, Mr. John Burka IV. How are you, Johnny? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Clay. Well, it's good to see you again. It's been a while. Uh, you visited me here in Paducah, Kentucky, uh, I guess pre-COVID. Uh, it's been that long. <laughs> um, in That's fact, right. When I first met you, Johnny, you were uh, with another organization, uh, the American Conservative. I know that our listeners would be interested to hear a bit about your background even before that and how you came to your current position leading the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Absolutely. But first, I'd like to make a quick plug that I love the city of Paducah. I think it's one of the most charming cities in the United States. Beautiful, historic downtown. So I'm always uh, happy to meet with you there in downtown, Clay. Thank you. This uh, message yeah, that's sponsored a- by the Chamber of Commerce of Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> there we go. Um, so I, I really got my start in actually a lot of my kind of business skills and career schools began with my family business. Um, So my parents were in the restaurant industry in Michigan for a number of years, and I worked with them on nights and on weekends since I was really 12 or 13 years old. Uh, So that's where my entrepreneurial skill set really came about. And then I was fortunate to go to Hillsdale College, where I was a major in Christian studies and focused uh, interdisciplinary, actually, between history, literature and theology. Uh, So I had a wonderful four years at Hillsdale had the privilege of studying with Dr. Larry Arn, who's the president of Hillsdale. He typically teaches a course on Churchill. Uh, I took a course on Aristotle with him, uh, Aristotle and C.S. Lewis, uh, which ended up being fantastic, really helped to shape you know, my imagination, give me a little bit of an interest in politics. After college, I went to seminary in uh, France, of all places, at the Faculté Jean Calvin, uh, where I studied for the equivalent of a master's in divinity, and then by the time I came, came back to the States, decided I actually wanted to put the ministry on pause and get into politics. And it was through Hillsdale Connections that I first started working at ISI in 2014. And I've wor- worked at ISI for two years, and then I left for four and ran the American Conservative Magazine based in Washington, D.C. And it was uh, uh, 2016 to 2020, uh, beginning with the election of Trump and uh, ending with the the uh, the beginning of the COVID pandemic and sh- shutdowns was a pretty wild time to run a conservative political magazine in D.C., but it was really formative experience for me. And then about a year and a half ago now, uh, ISI reached out and told me they were looking for a new president. And I interviewed and got the job and I've been here for uh, about 18 months. Well, that is good. And there's a lot in that answer that I like and would love to talk with you about, although it's a little bit off topic. But I will say uh, I am unabashedly a huge fan of Dr. Larry Arn. Uh, Hillsdale College is a great, great institution. And by the way, Dr. Arn was my guest on this program uh, not too long ago. Now, the first question I'm going to ask about ISI is the most obvious and basic one. What is your mission at ISI? What are you about? The mission of ISI is really to fill the void in the higher education system. 
We've been doing this on campuses since 1953. Uh, but we're what we're really seeing is that students, you know, students go to college presumably to, to get educated. But what uh, people often don't know, and increasingly now they do know it, but colleges are marked by debt, decadence and division. And kids are not often learning anything particularly useful. They're often encouraged to hate the things they're supposed to love, their family, their church, their country. And then they come out with a, a boatload of debt. And, you know, with the exception of if you go to a, a top college, uh, not many career prospects. So what ISI seeks to do is uh, to go to campuses around the country. We're on over a thousand campuses. We have chapters at 125 campuses and newspapers, student run newspapers at 75 campuses. And what we really do, seek to do is to find you know, the brightest students. Uh, most of them are conservative, but some of them are just independent minded and, and don't want to toe the ideological line of their campus. And we come alongside them. We work with aligned professors and we provide them the education that they're not getting in the core issues, the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition going all the way back to uh, Jerusalem and uh, tying it throughout history, culminating in Philadelphia, where our nation's experiment in liberty was born. We teach them about economics. We teach them about the Constitution. Uh, and then we also discuss hot button contemporary issues um, that they want to see a different perspective on than what's being taught in the classroom. Well, that sounds extraordinarily valuable to someone like me who cares about the country and our future. But it's a little sad, I've got to confess, Johnny, that an organization like ISI is necessary for that purpose. I would have liked to have hoped that uh, the founding principles would be core to any studies, especially historical studies, and that it would be ubiquitous, that that would be done as a matter of course. But you mentioned that, unfortunately, students are being taught to hate the things that they should revere, even or like or respect, at least. And it reminds me that same word and that same uh, thought was shared with me on this program a while back by Charlie Kirk. Do you have anything more than natural synergy with other organizations like Turning Point USA that Charlie Kirk runs, where they're trying to be on campus, inspiring people to think these uh, important things through? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I know Charlie very well. Actually, a couple months ago, we were on a panel together. And I think what we do is a little bit, it's distinct from what they do, but it's complementary in a way. Charlie does a really good job at uh, I would say focusing more on activism and focusing a little bit more on contemporary issues and really rallying and mobilizing youth to get you know active and involved and engaged uh, politically. Uh, ISI certainly focuses on contemporary issues, and many of our graduates go on to work in politics. You know, work for senators, become speechwriters in the White House. Um, so we have a long track record. Even Supreme Court justices have gone through ISI's programs. But I would say that our focus is more foundational, more educational, uh, really fulfilling the vocation of what a college should be teaching. So it's a, it's a bit of a deeper dive into the Constitution, into the Federalist Papers, into the authors and thinkers that students should know if they're going to be equipped to uh, deal with the country, the issues that our country is facing today. Yes. And you mentioned your cadre of ISI alumni listeners. A couple of those Supreme Court justices that he was referring to include Sam Alito and Neil Gorsuch. So great thinkers. 
we've talked about president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn. He's an ISI alum, right? And that's correct. Uh, that's pretty. Uh, heady company, is it difficult for an interested family to get someone into your ISI programs? I wouldn't say it's difficult. No, we're, we're certainly selective when it comes to our higher. So, so for example, you know, anyone can join an ISI society. As I mentioned, we're on 125 campuses. We have all sorts of reading materials, study guides, lecture bureaus so that students can invite speakers to campus and ISI pays for the speakers or debates and we we actually host and pay for the debates and basically provide all those free to students. So any student can get involved. They can learn more at ISI.org or follow us on social media. But for our regional conferences and our national conferences, those are much more selective. So we typically accept about a third of the applicants for our regional conferences. This year, we have five regional conferences. We have one coming up actually on uh, big tech, the problems with big tech, but also what are the promises for innovation uh, in the next American century? What are the technologies that will be shaping our country moving forward? So that one will be in Dallas two weeks from uh, this coming weekend. So we've got conferences all throughout the year. And like I said, those are a little bit more selective, but if you're the type of parent uh, that would be interested in having their your kid involved with ISI, I would imagine they're intelligent enough to be able to make the cut. That's encouraging. Now, I looked at ISI.org, of course, and one of the programs that you focus on is journalism. That seems to me a particularly important element these days. Uh, so much of what is presented in what we call news media is not journalism. It is advocacy and activism. And lately, it's outright gaslighting. Uh, I've said for years that if students in journalism schools, traditional journalism schools, were surveyed and they were asked this question, why are you here at this journalism school? You would get zero percent of those respondents to say, I'm here to report things that happen. And a hundred percent would tell you this, Johnny Burke, they would say, I want to change the world. And I say they're going into the wrong job if that's what their mission is. But I want to ask you, how do we recover some actual journalism? And does it tie in to uh, leveraging big tech? That's a really good question. So I, I can tell you what ISI is doing, and then maybe it'll be indicative of what the country should do as a whole. But what we really focus on is teaching young college students how to do solid reporting. And the reason for that is... You know, there, there are many reasons for that. Um, the the biggest one that we say is if you're a young person on campus, learning hard reporting skills is one of the greatest services you can offer your fellow students and that you can offer the country. Because the one unique thing that a young person on college can do that I can't do or that any famous journalist in Washington can't do is know what's actually going on on a college campus. And so these students are the eyes and the ears of uh, all the madness that's happening on colleges. And often parents don't even know what it, what's going on. Uh, certainly alumni and trustees often don't know what's going on if it wasn't for our network of newspapers. And because of the contentious nature of a college campus today, because it's so hostile to conservative thought, doing solid objective reporting, especially the more controversial the issue is, uh, it's absolutely essential to protect your own integrity, to protect your own career and your future. 
we, we really encourage reporting uh, for that reason. The second aspect to our program is once students graduate, we typically on an average year fund 10 students. We fund 80% of their first year's salary at a major media outlet. The goal is to seed the media with unbiased reporting and voices. And what we always tell young people is that when you're 22 or 23 years old, you know, we, we don't sugarcoat it. We say no one cares what a 22 or 23 year old thinks, right? You're, you're not going to ask a 22 year old, what's your opinion on Russia and the Ukraine? If you want, if you want an opinion, you'll go to a, an expert or a veteran uh, reporter. And so we encourage our young writers not to become opinion editors. Your whole life, you can share your opinions especially in those formative years, early to mid-20s, you need to be learning the hard reporting skills. And if you can build your reputation on that, it's going to lay a much surer foundation for your career. Well, there's two parts to journalism reporting. There's the presentation of it, but then there's also the consuming of it. And I think we have a, a mutual friend in Rod Dreher. He wrote a great book that just, uh, I interviewed him about it on this program, in fact, but it just keeps coming back at me time and time again with the principle that he put out there that he took from Solzhenitsyn, live not by lies. We are being bombarded, Johnny, with lies and fraud from the so-called news media and from leftists in government, I would say. It's a reminder to me of something George Orwell famously observed. He said, quote, all tyrannies rule through fraud and force, but once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force, unquote. And I look to the North and see Minister Trudeau sort of living that out. I cannot believe what is happening uh, in response to the, the Freedom Convoy. It just blows my mind. But regarding our consumption of news information, it is important for us to be discerning on what is real and what is fake, and to have a way to break ties when there's disagreement about things, and to come to some ground truth. Do participants in ISI programs get specific instruction on how to improve their discernment? That's a really great question, Clay. And I would say that's something that really, you know, discernment, kind of developing the moral, the intellectual skills to parse apart true, you know, ideology from philosophy, you know, what is what is true, good and well ordered and what is fundamentally rooted in lies that are, you know, cleverly contorted to sound appealing or persuasive. And so that's something that we've, you know, hosted conferences on and that the types of readings and authors that we seek to put in front of our students are really shaping their intellectual life in their mind in such a way that they're they should and ought to be able to tell between what is true and what is false. I think the surest backstop is actually to have good mentors for our students and good friends. And it sounds so simple, mentors and friends, right? But at the end of the day, having one solid professor, someone who stands above their peers, who can you know, pull the student aside, who they can meet with during office hours, who can really speak into their life, hopefully intellectually, but also you know, personally, I think is really important in helping students to kind of sort through you know, the, the, the noise, because it can be hard if you want to, you know, impress your peers, if you want to get good grades, if you want to be successful, just to toe the line, to go with the flow. So I think finding a, a one or two really good professors who can serve as a mentor can help you sort the truth from the lies. The other thing is strong, strong friendships with like-minded people that share your principles, share your values, share your faith. 
because you're you're generally going to become like the people that you hang out with. And, you know, even at a, a liberal school, you can still find people that share your values and courage is contagious. And so if you're around other people that are courageous, that are sticking to their principles, I think you can more easily sort through truth and falsehood. That is encouraging. Courage is contagious. I like that. And that is good counsel at every level, whether you're a student or long since graduated. Well, Johnny Burka, you have a, a very strategic view of how things are going for students on campus that most of us don't have that window on that that you have. Most of us citizens, though, are obviously interested in these things because the future leaders of our country are there on college campuses. Should we feel optimistic about our future based on your strategic view? That's a really tough question, Clay. I I am personally optimistic on account of the students that I deal with week in and week out. Just last weekend, we had our society leaders conference uh, down just north of Jacksonville, Florida. And we had students from a whole range of colleges. We had small Christian colleges represented. We had University of Alabama and University of Florida represented. And we had Yale and other Ivy League schools represented. So we were really bringing together a wide cross section of conservative leaders. And so coming out of a, a conference or sort of a retreat like that, where they were learning not only ideas, but also practice, you know, how do they kind of live out these principles? I, I was incredibly encouraged uh, by what they're doing. You know, it's it's just, you leave something like that so inspired. I do fear that in the wider culture and in our country as a whole, that things might continue to get worse before they get better. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we're mentoring, educating the leaders who will reform, rebuild our country. But I, I, I would be uh, dishonest if I were to tell you that I think it's going to get better in the next couple of years. I think, I think we're in for a rough ride for a while. Well, I appreciate that direct and on-target answer. I'll follow up by asking you, Johnny, what are the main specific concerns you have or that we should consider uh, regarding particularly what folks are facing on their college campuses today? Maybe I'll start by telling an anecdote, because I think this kind of sets the stakes uh, pretty high. There's a professor named Jason Hill who's worth following. You might see him on Fox News. He writes a lot for the New York Post and sometimes the Wall Street Journal. He teaches at DePaul University. He teaches some courses on philosophy and literature. And Jason, he's he's, uh, actually Jamaican. Um, So he's, he's black, immigrant from Jamaica, conservative. And he refused to participate in some of the diversity training courses that his college offered because he said, well, hey, I'm 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 black. I'm from Jamaica. You know, I'm an immigrant to this country. I kind of know all you need to know about what it's like to to um, become an American, to fit in and to thrive in society. I don't need to take your special training course. And so the university actually put a trigger warning that pops up, literally it's a pop-up. So when any potential student at DePaul University goes to sign up for one of his courses because they think it looks interesting or they need it for a requirement, a warning pops up on the screen and says, basically, beware, Jason Hill has views that are outside, basically the window of allowable opinion. He refused to participate in our diversity training course. And as a result of this, Jason now has about four students 
taking the courses that he teaches. Right. And he, this is a brilliant man. And he has multiple lawsuits, actually, that he's fighting against the university. And so I think what you what you see at these campuses is a censorship regime that sets the standard for what constitutes an allowable opinion so far to the left that you that you have someone like Jason who kind of, you know, checks all the boxes of, of you think a voice that they'd want to hear on their campus. And they're really doing everything in their power to prevent students from hearing it. So I would say that at most, yeah, I would say at like the top liberal arts schools, the Ivy League schools, you know, you're you're in for quite the challenge. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of great schools, school places like Hillsdale, where I was fortunate to go, Grove City College, Thomas Aquinas College. Uh, and then there's there's also a lot of other state schools uh, where there are centers uh, that are still you know allowed to exist where you can explore conservative or libertarian thought, or there's a whole network of Christian studies centers. Some of them have lodgings that students can stay there. It's kind of like being part of a, an intellectual fraternity or sorority. And so I would say that there are the, the, the worse that the universities get themselves, uh, the better that a lot of these paraeducational institutions that have popped up alongside campus have gotten in, ter- in terms of quality. And so yeah, things are bleak, but I would say there's, if you're hungry to learn, you have no excuse, right? There's so many great organizations that could help you find the professors and the thinkers that you need to get the education that you deserve. That is incredible. And the word that popped into my mind as you're explaining how the university leadership approached this and how the leftists in Washington and elsewhere, Ottawa, for example, are pushing things. Uh, is theocracy, but their religion is not Judaism nor Christianity nor even Islam. Their religion is power for themselves. And we do, you know, we're talking about you saying uh, your your view is outside of what's accepted. Well, there is a standard that we Christians and others hold on to, God's word, that's a standard. But if we went and said, hey, in this school, uh, anything that contradicts the Holy Bible, you're not allowed to say it on campus, pretty soon somebody would be saying, uh, that's theocracy and knock it off. And we would say, yeah, okay, we're going to let the truth of the uh, message stand for itself and present it to people and let them choose it. But leftists can't do that. They can't tolerate debate about anything they can't tolerate questions about, you know, what's the basis for why you're saying what you're saying. Their idea is nobody's allowed to contradict it and nobody's allowed to hear that someone may have contradicted it. That is a, uh, a clear indicator that the message the leftists are pushing is not true. It is not able to withstand any scrutiny. Uh, it's really sad. I think it's a really insightful point about leftism being or wokeism or you know whatever we might want to call it being a religion you know and i i do think some have actually called it it is it's actually a deformation of of christianity and, and so i think what you see with kind of woke ideology is is as the the population has become less christian or stopped going to church uh the reality is that all those concepts sin guilt the need for you know purity, redemption, the need for righteousness, 
those don't because those are actually fundamental to our nature as human beings. They're in, made in the image of God. Those don't go away. You can't pretend they don't exist. And so what happens is people leave the churches, but they still look for an outlet to heal their guilt. They still look for someone to declare that they're righteous because they, you know, and so, so what you see at the universities in particular is they're working through guilt, sin, reconciliation, atonement without the gospel, without Christ. And that results in the scapegoating and the whole sort of logic of identity politics. Of And so I think it's, um, I, I do think at the end of the day, the only way that we actually kind of uh, truly heal, restore and rebuild the country is if we can actually restore that Christian foundation, because that's the only thing that can provide a proper context for getting rid of our guilt, right? And putting us, restoring us in right relationship with those who may have been wronged or that we have wronged. And with the creator himself. Amen. Absolutely. Well, you have both students and faculty involved in your programs, Johnny, at ISI. For the rest of us, uh, what are some ways that we can engage with the important mission of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute? Sure, I would say the the easiest way is to to learn to learn with us and to learn from us. So we uh, have a podcast called Conservative Conversations, where we bring on a number of authors, journalists, and professors. Uh, it's it's designed to introduce a young college students to conservative thinking, but you can be a lifelong learner and still uh, you know benefit from from the podcast. We have a journal called Modern Age Journal. So that's a quarterly journal of ideas uh, that uh, will actually uh, be going to an online daily format in addition to the print format. So you can be on the lookout for that uh, this coming summer. And then if you go to our YouTube channel, if you go, um, search for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, you can pretty much find every lecture uh, that's given all, all year round on uh, on our campuses and at our conferences. And we do... Um, about 150 lectures, debates, and conferences for students a year. So if you want to uh, get a sneak peek of what the students are uh, listening to and hearing uh, in our classrooms, you can do that at our YouTube channel. Well, that's all very valuable resources, listeners. Uh, highly recommended for all of those. I'm reminded that a lot of uh, educators, in quotes, are terrified of the idea that people might look in and see what is being taught. To the students. So I'm encouraged that since you guys are teaching unchanging objective truth, which is the focus of this program, hopefully you don't mind. The truth is never scared of being challenged. So I salute you for that. Well, thank you thank very you. much, uh, Johnny Burke, President, CEO of Intercollegiate Studies Institute. It's been my honor today to have you as my guest on Core Principles. Thanks so much for having me, Clay. Core Principles podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information and please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.